0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on biblical worldview with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to give a bit of a review and summary of what he's covered so far before launching into a new set of talks on the Enoch factor, which we will continue on next week. As always, we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan reviewing and summarizing his previous thoughts on Christian worldview.
1: This is basically a course in basic Christian worldview. We started at the center dealing with the things that are true about our uh, life directly before God's throne and how that extends out into our common life. Special and common, if we want to put it that way. And along the way, we have dealt mainly with worship and the church. Now, I want to review some of these principles because they're the same principles that we will be looking at together with some others uh, in extended applications in a Christian view of the world. And again, we'll talk somewhat about worship in the church this morning, and we'll always be making some points about that as we go through the class over the next couple of months. But uh, today I think it would be good for us to step back and take a wider picture. And some of these things are not entirely easy to master either, and so it's good to take a second look. We're going to look at what we said about education and truth, what we said about miracle and providence, what we said about the relationship between knowing and doing and submitting. And uh, then we'll be in a position to look at the development of pagan culture, how Christians respond to pagan culture, um, what's the proper Christian approach to art, and say going to the movies it seems to be controversial in some sections of our church. Um, We'll also, Jim Peters will also come and talk about some recent research that's been done in the archaeology of the ancient world, evidence of high civilization, evidence of um, that uh, the whole evolutionary anthropology view of human history is baloney, which we know, but which is good to have confirmed by evidence. And all of that lies before us. And we'll also be talking some about. Art and Architecture. So we're going to go over some of the same material we did a year and a half ago, only in a much uh, better way because we've been able to learn so much more and because we have so many new people. Now, basically, I just want to look at this page that you've been handed, and we'll use that as our key to reviewing what we've looked at before. The first thing that I'd like to review was what we said about a month ago about education. Education, because we're very much involved in that. When we want to teach people properly, there are three things we have to set up. You can read here, first of all, A, a way of communicating information, and that's what we think of when we think of teaching. That's what I'm doing here, communicating information. But a second thing we saw that needs to be set up uh, in an educational program is a pattern of repetitious activity, or what we can summarize in one word, ritual and we saw that uh, that is also very important pedagogically in training our children, uh, setting up good habits in the home for ourselves. We have to restructure our habits many times. If we want our children to learn properly, we need to get them to bed the same time, get them up at about the same time, and not constantly be tearing up uh, the ritual of their lives. And not only with children, but also in the church. Uh, that, to a great extent, is what our liturgy is about. It trains people, and forms a structure or a pattern of repetition or catechizing, if you want to think of it that way. The entire service is a catechism every week, catechizing activity. This is also absolutely essential <clears throat> to proper teaching, and the Bible always sets it forth as very important, training people to do certain things, and that influences their minds. as a reciprocal interaction between the mind and the doing. We'll get to that. And then the third thing we saw is essential to proper education is the structure of rewards and punishments. This also determines how we think. If we know that we're going to be punished for certain things, we tend, that tends to influence the way we think. So we're tooling down the highway between here and Dallas at 75, and we see a policeman has already pulled somebody over the side of the road, and for some reason everybody I know slows down under those circumstances. Now, that is pedagogically effective. You know, about the thousandth time that happens, you probably won't be tooling down at 75 miles an hour. When you come across a cop, you might be going 65 because the general effect of that discipline in government is to train us to think and act a certain way. And how we act and how we think are both important. Now, some comments on that. Number one, people tend to reduce education to only one or two of these three aspects. That's just a human tendency, uh, we like to think that we can understand everything fully, and when the human mind goes to trying to exhaustively understand things, trying to understand things exhaustively, it tends to reduce everything to one central idea. Then we can put everything through that one central idea. But as Trinitarians who believe that God is one in three, we need to recognize that we can never boil things down to one principle. And we need to try to remember that uh, we have to live in a certain amount of tension with two or three different things. Examples of this, uh, modern education focuses only on teaching, believing that memory work, ritual classroom patterns are pointless, and ignoring rewards and punishments. That's largely the problem in the public schools. They don't have any type of rituals or catechizing. The modern math approach, you, some of you know about modern math. What is modern math? Well, there's nothing wrong with modern math in terms of what it teaches. The problem with modern math is it's pedagogy. And the pedagogy basically is the child has to understand the principles before he can learn how to do the problems. Now, that's an assumption which is incorrect. It assumes you've got to understand something before you can do it, and that's just not true. People do things all the time out of habit, that they aren't necessarily thinking about. And similarly, in in instructing children in math, uh, they don't have to learn all the axioms and or postulates of uh, how to solve algebraic equations before they can see how to do them. Because there's a certain amount of just plain seeing, uh, uh, grasping that's involved. The problem with modern math, as people have complained about it, is this business of always having to have work through an elaborate understanding process before you get to the performance process. And actually, these two things should go together, not trying to reduce one to the other or ignoring one or the other. I think sometimes those who who react against modern math go to the other extreme and also tend to cheat the children of the kind of understanding that they could have of basic mathematical principles. That's just an example. That may not be the only thing that people don't like about modern math, but that's enough to get you to see the idea. Now, Protestants, I think, often in their Christian schools include punishments, lots and lots of punishments, but still fail to understand the importance of ritual in the classroom. For instance, having students stand when the teacher enters the room, keeping the door closed during the class so the children can't see out, only allowing the children to go to the bathroom at bathroom breaks and so forth. I've been I've known schools where if a child needs to go to the bathroom, he just pops out and goes. If he's thirsty, he pops out and goes. Well, I don't think that that is very conducive to an educational environment. And I think that type of destructuring and de-ritualizing of the classroom works against the uh, education process. One needs to have all three of these elements present In teaching, Uh, simply chanting through multiplication tables—it's you know a child can sit there and understand that all right five times six is thirty because you've got he can write the number five out six times and add them up and he gets to thirty. But why not you know there's no problem with having him say five times one is five, five times two is ten, five times three is fifteen and chanting through and memorizing multiplication table. Why not have both of these? They're both very important pedagogically. So these kinds of things, all three need to be worked into our way of doing education, and all three are important in the church. The church is structured by church discipline. The church is structured by liturgy. The church is structured by teaching. So I've said down here, too, in a large sense, these three ways of education correspond to school, church, and state. In other words, the school is primarily concerned with communicating information. That's why this is Sunday school. Uh, so to speak that's basically all we do in here is communicate information if somebody stood up and started screaming yell, yeah, we might have to have some discipline but basically uh, we're just communicating information here Sunday school and in the school in general but the school involves these other aspects as we just noted the church is primarily concerned as regards its members with organizing them for worship it communicates truth and teaches supposedly all men It's supposed to prophesy to the world at large and not just to the church. And it maintains a structure of government. But we can say that, in a sense, the primary function of the church is to organize worship before the throne of God. And we've been looking at that, and there's no need to go back over all that. And yet the church involves all three. Certainly instruction is equally important with ritual. And we can also say that the state must communicate its laws... And it has to maintain ritual. There's a ritual in the courtroom, and that's designed to impress fear into the people who were there. But primarily, the state's there to punish lawbreakers. And so these three aspects of training and life are found in all three institutions. That's what we saw when we looked at education. That's why in the church, we don't want to just isolate out instruction and say that's the main thing when people understand and they'll do right. That's not true. The world's full of people who understand things and don't do right. Uh, and are unsubmissive to government. And so all three of these avenues must be used. God used all three of them at Mount Sinai. Called people out of Egypt, got them there before Mount Sinai. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of information here, and once you've learned it, then you're going to institute some laws and some government, and you're going to institute some worship and some ritual. Mm-mm. As soon as they got there, he said, don't touch the mountain or I'll kill you. And he hadn't taught them much of anything because they'd been idolaters in Egypt. So he calls them out, and right away, the discipline is set up, the ritual is set up, and the instruction begins. And they are all three there as part of the training of the people. Boot camp. Boot camp for the younger generation, as Gary North always says, boot hill for the older generation in the wilderness. Now, the second thing we looked at two or three weeks ago after this was miracle and providence. And we saw when we discussed miracle and Providence that there is no such thing as natural law. And so a miracle is not a violation of natural law. And that's the bottom line, the thing to keep in mind with respect to modern natural science. Natural science is basically the investigation of natural law. And uh, that conception of things won't work on a Christian foundation. We saw, secondly, B, that a miracle occurs when God does something differently from the way he usually does it. What runs the world is God. God runs it. God makes things happen. God makes the watch tick. Uh, We can look at other things that go on here, but the bottom line is that God causes things that move to move in the ways they move. God has not set up some intermediate thing to govern the world, because if he did, then Christ would not be the proper mediator. In fact, there are modern heretical beliefs that correspond to ancient heretical beliefs that say that God's law stands between himself and the world. And so in order to get to God, you go through his law and then to him. And uh, in all kinds of various ways, mysticism, legalism, this way of thinking comes up at the philosophical level and at the instinctive level because people instinctively want to put something between themselves and God. But actually, we said there is nothing in between God and his universe when it comes to government. God runs things that run. God makes the clouds move the way they move, and the wind to blow the way it blows. Whether he uses personal agents like angels to do it, or and which the Bible indicates as regards the weather, or whether he does it himself directly, it's always personal. And so when we investigate how things work, we're investigating how God acts and nothing less, which puts a certain amount of fear and trembling into the investigation. And uh, we saw, third, that miracles in the Bible are confirming signs of God's truth and thus form the sensible revelation counterpart to God's verbal revelation. We spent a couple of weeks on that. You have a handout on that. I don't want to go any further into that. But, see, we can now talk less about the church and more about a Christian view of the world. D, Christian science, and uh, why should we let the Christian scientists have that phrase, Let's forget about them and talk about biblical, Bible-believing Christian science. Christian science, as opposed to modern science, is based on the covenant of Genesis 9, that God maintains certain patterns, and we can count on him to do so. So we're really not trusting in a natural law that things will continue the way they always have. We are trusting in God to maintain things the way they always have been maintained. Thus, an investigation of the world and of these patterns is an activity of faith. Relying on God not to change his word-established patterns. You see, now, let's say that you want to investigate. God has put you in the garden, and he said, I want you to name the animals, describe them. Remember, names in the Bible are always descriptions. The word Abraham, that's not just a handle. That means father of a multitude. And uh, the various names that are in the Bible always have a meaning. They're like Indian names, running bear, or... Flying Eagle, or some other Indian name we think of as Indian names. That's what Bible names are like. They're not like our names, see? Jim, what does that mean? Well, it means one who replaces another, see? Second Adam, that's me. Jacob, Jacob means supplanter. The word Jacob means second Adam, one who replaces. So, but you don't call me supplanter, you call me Jim, uh, you don't call somebody's name as William. My brother's name is William. That means protector. His name isn't protector. His name is William, which means protector. You have to translate it before you can get the meaning. But in Bible names, his name would have been protector. Hi, what's your name, protector? Oh, my name's supplanter. My name's father of many. My name's running bear. Those were Bible names, see. We don't even think that way. We have to make an effort to realize that when, when they said to Abraham, what's your name? He said, my name's father of a multitude. It might be better if we translated our Bible that way, you know, instead of saying, and Abraham said, if we said, father of a multitude said, and all the names were translated, then we'd understand that these are Indian names, or analogous, they're like Indian names. We have to go through this problem of thinking about it. You know, it's, it's a little bit funny, people want to give their children Bible names, but nobody really does, you see. Uh, let's say that I wanted to name my child Joshua. Well, that's not a Bible name. Really, I should name him Savior. Savior Jordan. That would be a real Bible name because that's in English. But uh, we call him Joshua or another Bible name. We're really using the sound of the Bible name and not the name itself. You see the difference? The sound of the name. And uh, that has to be translated before we get the meaning. So even there, we're not really using Bible names. Uh, if we name our child Esther, we should probably name her Star. And uh, maybe we should all have uh, uh, second names that are the translations of our real name. Uh, we could say James Jordan or James, parenthesis, Supplanter Jordan, instead of James, parenthesis, Jim Jordan. See what I mean? Okay. How did we get off onto that? Well, we were talking at any rate about Christian science, and I said, why should we let the her- heretical cult have this name Christian science? Let's reclaim it, let's assert it, let's forget about them, drive them away. And uh, God establishes these patterns in the world. Now, the patterns that... Uh, oh, I was saying that if a man investigates particular animal. And Adam says, God says to Adam, name the animal, which means describe them, you see. The name is actually a description. And so he starts looking into it. Now, if God is not maintaining things the same way all the time and things are constantly changing, then you can't accumulate any knowledge and you can't build anything. It's like building on quicksand, you know, or building on very building on the kind of soil you have down in Florida where we lived for a few years. They want to build a condominium on the sand, but the sand is going to shift. And so in order to build it there, they have to drive these pilings way down into the ground to guarantee stability. And then they build a building up on top because the ground will shift. And you can't build anything, and you can't assume anything, and you can't learn anything, and your memory is no good because tomorrow it's going to be different. Tomorrow, things will fall to the ground real slow instead of real fast because God is changing everything from day to day. And so God makes a covenant, and he says, I will not change things every day to day from day to day as long as the earth remains seed time and harvest and summer and winter and gravity and uh, light and how it works. These things will remain the same except on occasion when I make iron float to the surface of the water. On occasion when I make the sun move backwards in the sky. On occasion I will do things differently, but in the main you can count on it to remain the same. And that's by covenant. See, that's part of covenant, and it's actually part of salvation. It's an extension of the work of Christ into re-covenanting the world. Now look at E here, Roman 2, letter E. Since these patterns were set up after the flood, that is, they're set up in Genesis 9, we are warranted in seeing the flood as a year of miracle. Now that's important. What we have to say is that during the flood, the angels rearranged the world. Now, the creation research people have done a lot of good work in trying to explain some of the patterns of activity that might have taken place during the flood, and there's nothing wrong with that type of investigation because, as I say here, God frequently uses means. For instance, when Jesus healed the blind man by making clay out of dirt and spit and putting it into his eye. God frequently uses means to accomplish his exceptional works of miracles. Thus, Christian scientists can and must seek to understand what went on even during the flood year. It's apostasy not to try that, to try to understand the world properly. It's apostasy not to try to do it. But at the same time, they should realize, and one doesn't catch in their writings that they're really very much aware of this, that the flood year is a great exception to normal processes. And it's not necessarily the case that if that one can formulate scientific uh, natural law rules that would explain everything that went on. There's a tendency in the creation research people to say, okay, there was water above the firmament, and it all fell down, and it filled up the earth, and it washed over the earth, and then that explains everything that we find. Maybe not. Maybe angels were rearranging the world. Maybe angels saw to it that plants were pressed down and became coal, at a certain place because God knew that in the year 3500 A.D., which was not even here yet, men would need coal and men would be exploring that part of the world and would find it, see? I think we have to see that God prepared the world during the flood by making oil deposits and coal deposits and lime deposits and gold deposits and other kinds of things in the world and rearranging the geography. And God does that by what we might call miracle. And the fact that these the covenant is made after the flood year points to the entire year as... A miraculous event. But remember, it's not miracle versus providence. Miracle is just a heightened form of providence. So miracles can be investigated as well as providence, even by Christian science, because we build off the word and not off of autonomous reason. So there's miracle and providence, and there's an important application that we can make to a Christian view of the world. And we don't necessarily have to uh, limit our understanding of miracle and providence only to ritual and liturgy. Now, I'd like mainly this morning to talk about what we talked about last week, as I think it bears repeating and maybe recasting. Knowing and doing and submitting. When man was created, he was made in the image of God, and he was given two basic tasks, two basic characteristics. these are set out in Genesis chapter 2. We might turn there, although the passage is familiar to most of you from being used in the class from time to time. Genesis 2, why don't we look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, these are the two tasks, cultivate and keep. Cultivate is kingly, and the kingly task involves two parts. It involves understanding and doing. We Look at that. Doing and wisdom. And to keep it. The word keep there means guard, and that's the priestly task. Man's priestly task was to guard the garden from satanic intrusion. The fall of man... Is at this point, because this is actually the more fundamental characteristic of human nature, to be rightly or wrongly related to God. And it's on the basis of whether man is rightly or wrongly related to God that he does his kingly task. Priestly aspect is primary over the kingly aspect in that sense. So God elaborates on what it means to guard the garden, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now that has to do with keeping or guarding. It has to do with man's priestly task of protecting the garden from sin and not turning from God himself. But then you'll notice that this dominion task, this cultivation task, "...involves language as well as activity. Then the Lord God said, "...it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him." By the way, there's no such word in English as help meet. Help meet means help suitable. Meet means suitable. and uh, Or proper. It is truly meet, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places. We've updated that to it's truly proper, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places, Right. So a helper proper for him is what this means. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. That's a repetition. He'd actually already done that. And brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all cattle, birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. All right? So the understanding part and the dominion part, or doing part, go together as part of the kingly task. So we may say, as I've said here, man's kingly or basilic task, (laughs) that's what we theologians call it, when we're together after a beer, that's just a joke, but that's man's kingly task, we'll stick with kingly, I think, I mean, why be be a snob about it all? Why did I put this in here then? Because I'm a snob. Man's kingly task. Number one, knowing. Knowing is naming things, categorizing them, and understanding them. And this is wisdom or understanding. It's not the same thing as prophecy. It's important. We sometimes, and I know that there are theologians and writers who do this, they'll say man's speaking function is prophetic, his doing function is kingly, and his religious or guarding function uh, with respect to sin and righteousness is priestly But that's not really the way the Bible sets it out. Prophecy in the Bible is designed to call sinners to repentance, not to give information about rocks and trees and flowers. Prophecy is something that comes in after the fall to bring men back to their kingly tasks. So there's a primacy to prophecy, we might say, and we'll look at that. And in that sense, we can say there's a primacy to preaching, but we want to hedge that about so it doesn't become the primacy of the intellect. We'll get back to that. The second aspect of man's kingly task is to cultivate the garden, working it and bringing it to fulfillment. This is dominion. Now, the great example of a true king is Solomon, the son of David. Jesus, of course, is the son of David, so Solomon is a type of Christ. But let's look at 1 Kings 23 and see what the kingly task involves. You want to look at what the kingly function is. You look at Solomon, who is the greatest of all the kings. And first of all, Look in First Kings 10, verse 23 to 25. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Those are the two aspects. The dominion aspect, having things, doing things, working with things, and the knowledge aspect, understanding things, having wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his heart, And they brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Now, let's look just for fun at these verses, and I'll show you something else that you can watch for in the Bible. These verses are arranged in chiastic order. What's chiastic order? Well, it's A, B, B, A. Look, so Solomon became greater than all the kings in A, riches, and B, wisdom. Now, when it elaborates on these, it elaborates on them in reverse order. A, riches, B, wisdom. Now, B, the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, and A, they brought every man riches. Now, if you keep that in mind, you'll find the Bible is usually written in that what's called chiastic order. That's just a literary point for those of you who, who read the Bible. You'll see that very frequently it will list A, B, and then it will discuss B, and then it will go back and discuss A. And here's just one example among a multitude in the Bible. These two things characterize the true king. Let's look at 1 Kings 4, 29 to 34. And we'll have a little Bible quiz. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that's on the seashore. Interesting analogy. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, wiser than Athan the Ezraite. Anybody know who Athan the Ezraite is? Don't Paul speak at once. Well, he wrote Psalm 89. We won't turn there. And he was wiser than Haman. Does anybody know who Haman was? H-E-M-A-N? He wrote Psalm 88. Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal. These are also in the same family. According to 1 Chronicles 2, verse 6. See, I checked all this out first, so I have it written in. I don't know it either. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. All right? Now, what did Solomon do? He spoke... Also, 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spoke about trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men came from all the peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. Now, you notice that he does what Adam was supposed to do. He names the animals, catalogs them, describes them. He's your initial... uh, investigator of nature foundation of biology and everything else here spoke of animals birds creeping things and fish generally this would have been in terms of their habits you know in the book of proverbs that the habits of the animals are made analogous to the life of man but it wouldn't have been restricted to that and this is what wisdom is it's not prophecy so much as it is a kingly task prophecy calls men back from sin to righteousness So there is an example of this kingly task, and because these two things go together and are inseparable, we have said down here in 3A4, knowing forms the context for doing, and doing forms the context for knowing. They both are equally ultimate. They each are equally ultimate. Neither is prior to the other, but each is based on faith, which we say is submitting. Faith is submitting. Now, that's a little bit different from the intellectualistic view of faith, which equates faith with knowledge. And that's what we are sort of attacking here. Faith is submitting. And when we talk about faith, we're moving to man's priestly task, which is hieratic, (laughs) priestly task. And the first thing we say about that is that guarding the garden by submitting in faith to God's word is what the priestly task was. He was to guard or protect the garden from sin and death and hell and Satan by submitting in faith to God's word. Second, the priestly task of submitting to God's government is prior to the kingly tasks of knowing and doing. Now, that's the essential point here. It's not prior in time, but it's a precondition. If you don't have faith, you don't have understanding or works. Man's fall was priestly and destroyed his kingly work. It was because man failed to guard the garden that he fell. The fall did not take place in the area of disobedience to some cultural mandate task or failure to name the animals properly. Rather, the fall came in the form of rebellion against God's government. And thus, three, submission to Christ's covenant government is the precondition of both knowledge and good works. We don't come to faith on the basis of knowledge. We don't come to faith on the basis of works. It's the other way around. We come to faith, and our works and our knowledge grow out of that. And so we said, and we've maintained here on the reverse side, people are received into the church on the basis of submission to the covenant, and not on the basis of knowledge or proven good works. And we said last time that apart from submission, understanding is nothing but vain imaginings. Now, the unbeliever may hit on the truth at some points, and so we have to have the ability to go in and read his books and cull out the truth and separate the wheat from the chaff. But basically, what he understands is empty or vain imaginings because it's not done in faith. And similarly, the unbeliever's works. They may actually conform to God's law, but they're what the Bible calls works of the law. They're not works of faith. So he may do some good things, but he does them from the wrong reason and the wrong motivation because he's not submitted to God. Now, in the church, we said liturgy, or doing, is the context for understanding doctrine, and doctrine, knowing, is the context for liturgy. Each must be conducted in an attitude of faithful submission to God's law. And so we may draw two morals from this. One, teaching and liturgy must be according to the Bible, not according to the thinking of men. That's a regulative principle. Second, and this is a personal application, that's an official application, here's a personal application. We must listen to the teaching and perform the actions in an attitude of faith and submission, not in mere ceremony with our minds wandering. means you have to invest personal effort in the worship, not to go to sleep during the sermon, not to think about what you're fixing for lunch during the sermon, not to think about the people who've offended you and stepped on your toes during the sermon, but thinking about the word of God during the sermon, and similarly during the ceremony or during the ritual. It has to be personal engagement, or else it is meaningless. And it can become just as meaningless in a ritualistic church as in a preaching-oriented church when people don't pay attention. And paying attention is basically what we're talking about here. Submission to the covenant. Now we can go on and say, this question I've just, I'm, I just, I really wish I hadn't typed it this way, but it is an interesting side point. Two or three offices. And the answer to that is, the question here is, do we have in the Bible three offices of prophet, priest, and king, or do we have only two offices of king and priest? Well, that's a tricky question, and depends on what you mean by office. But actually, in the Bible, man was made king and priest, and the only two officially anointed persons in the Bible are the kings and priests. You never have a prophet anointed with oil. Um, They're anointed charismatically. Uh, directly by the spirit and not officially. See, they're not the prophetic office is not regulated by an official structure. It stands outside of it. Prophets were never anointed, and it would be better to speak of a prophetic function than a prophetic office. So that's the way I usually speak of it. Prophecy came in because of man's sin to call him back to God. It's thus connected to the priestly office. It was the priests who were supposed to be Israel's teachers and preachers. That's always the way it is until the priests apostatize. Then God begins to raise up prophets on the side. But in the early days it says instruction and teaching is found on the lips of the priest and the Levites. Prophecy calls men back to righteousness, both kingly and priestly. But, and the kingly and priestly offices I say are inseparable. We are always doing and understanding something. That's kingly. And we always have an accompanying attitude of faithfulness or faithlessness. The attitude, the priestly attitude is always there, either directed to God or directed against him. And the understanding and activity is always there. Always doing something. We always have some idea, at least, about what we're doing. The understanding aspect is there, maybe in a meager amount. The doing aspect is there, maybe in a meager amount. And the attitude is there, one way or the other. The priestly Attitude. Thus, we may say, true faith is is inseparable, though distinguishable from right knowledge and good works. True faith is inseparable from right knowledge and good works. Now, you can distinguish faith and works, but you never separate them. You can distinguish faith and knowledge, but you may never separate them. Knowledge and works both flow from faith. Right knowledge and good works flow from faith, and that's why by their fruits you shall know them. At the same time, and I think this is important for us theologically and personally, the priestly commitment is the precondition for kingly understanding and obedience. Thus we say we are saved by faith alone, but that the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're not saved by understanding. We're not saved by works. We're saved by trust and commitment or submission. These things are inseparable, but it's the priestly attitude which is decisive in salvation. Now, so we may say that prophecy, and this is the sum of what prophecy is, prophecy calls us to faithful works and faithful knowledge. It calls us to works and knowledge, but only in the context of faith. The faith is a precondition for good works and true knowledge. Now that's important, and the, where we are going with this is to see where Protestantism is off the track. And so I have said, gee, the Roman Catholic heresy is this, prophecy calls us to works as a way of attaining faith and salvation. You have to merit the merits of Christ. Prophecy calls us to works as a way of attaining to faith and salvation. Man's kingly doing is the basis of his priestly salvation. Man gets put back in the garden by working hard and getting back in there and then he starts to guard it. You may see it that way. Man works to get through the door. He works to get through the labyrinth and then get to the door as we saw the other day. And then once he gets in there he starts to guard the garden and do his priestly task again. Salvation by works which lead to the priestly faith and commitment. Well, we reject that. The problem is we tend to fall into the Protestant heresy. That is, I don't think that Protestantism is heretical, but all too often this heresy comes up in Protestantism, and that's this. Prophecy calls us to knowledge as a way of attaining faith in salvation. Man's kingly knowing is the basis of his priestly salvation. So how do you get back in the garden? You get back in there by learning a whole bunch of stuff, and then they let you in. And then once you're in, you can have the Lord's Supper, or you can engage in the priestly activities. Instead of the priestly activities being the foundation and precondition for knowledge and works, either knowledge or works become the precondition for the priestly guarding activity. You get back in through your works, either understanding or doing. And so the whole thrust of Van Til's work, we say, is in attacking non-presuppositional apologetics is in this area, as we've heard in the sermons. They go out and reason with the man in the street and we start trying to talk about science and facts and all this kind of stuff and move him to an intellectual attainment and then he's going to build faith on top of that. It'll never work. That's exactly parallel to a Roman Catholic way of evangelism which says, go out and do a bunch of good works and you'll come to faith. Go out and do a bunch of good works and you'll come to faith. Protestants go and they say, think it through and come to a bunch of knowledge and then you'll come to faith. Here, read this book on all the evidences for the resurrection, written by a lawyer, whatever his name was. And you get all that information down, and then you come to faith. That's work salvation. Reverses the order. Puts the kingly as a foundation for the priestly instead of the other way around. And it's exactly parallel to the Roman Catholic heresy. And it's based on this false doctrine of the primacy of the intellect instead of the primacy of faith. Now, we made an application, and I want to close here by making the same kinds of application to worship that we made before, but we'll see how this extends from worship into all of life. Look at letter I. Roman and Eastern Orthodox worship involves doing without knowing. People go through all the rituals, or at least they observe them, but they never taught much of anything about what they're doing, and they're certainly not taught the Bible. Because there is a vacuum in instruction, false teaching arises to fill the vacuum, So after the Protestant Reformation, when they realized their people were real ignorant, then they started to teach them again. But by this time, false teaching had arisen to fill the vacuum, because they didn't want the true teaching. You eliminate teaching, and you get false teaching to fill the vacuum. And then there's some feedback, and the teaching, uh, excuse me, and the liturgy and good works are also corrupted. So you start by dropping out the teaching aspect and emphasizing mainly the ritual, the liturgy, and the good works, which go along with that, the doing aspect, and then your knowing aspect is corrupted, and then that feeds back, and you begin to get a whole perverse system growing out of it. Now we have to say that Roman and Eastern Orthodox churches do a lot in the area of works. They certainly influence government. You ever read Protestant literature about the great Catholic Jesuit conspiracies? Gee, why isn't there any good literature about Protestant conspiracies? Why aren't we conspiring to take over Brazil and all these other places? Because we don't ever do anything. It's kind of, it's kind of a shame, you know, it shows you up. Where are our conspiracies? How come we're not running the government in all these countries here and there? How come, you know, when Rome speaks, people tremble? We like to say that when Protestants speak, people listen, but I don't think that's the case. But when Rome speaks down in, you know, Nicaragua, the government trembles at least. They have some influence. Where's ours? Not much. Not anymore. Never was much, and there isn't much left of what there was. So they do a lot. They've got a lot of works influencing government, administering charity. Roman Catholic charity is big. Roman Protestant charity is, well, you look look real hard. I'll tell you where the month... What is the Protestant charitable institution? So, not the church. The Protestant charitable institution is Freemasonry. That's what Protestant charitable institution is. It's not the church. We want to do charity, we go outside the church and do it through the Masons. I don't think much of that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox do a lot, they control governments by instilling fear into the hearts of the uh, magistrates so that they do what's right only what's right isn't really what's right but at least they think it's right and they do a lot of charity but they're definitely perverse in doctrine and we always focus in on how perverse their doctrine is right we all know how perverse their doctrine is but let's just uh, get the beam out of our own eye here you know a beam and a splinter are the same size it's just that if you pull the splinter up close like this it starts to look like a beam do that You see how big it is. Now, in the other guy's eye, it's real little. But when you get it up here in your own, it's real big. You ever thought about that? The beam and the splinter are the same. Take a toothpick, ram it in the eye of your wife, and it looks like a toothpick. But ram it in your own eye, and it looks like a beam. So let's get the beam out of our own eye. Protestant worship generally involves knowing without doing. A lot of instruction, very little activity. Because there is a vacuum in liturgy and good works, false liturgy and works arise to fill the vacuum. And then there's feedback and teaching is also corrupted. See how these are parallel. These churches teach a whole lot, but they left the government, the state, to do as it pleases and are generally anonymian in life, ignoring the Old Testament law. Surely we don't need to make the point that modern Protestantism has become anonymian. And they don't do very much charity. Now I've got three points here. Since this is our problem in Protestantism, let's expand on it some. First of all, since God's rituals are done infrequently, new rituals take their place. And preeminently in American Protestantism, that is the altar call. The altar call is the ritual and the sacrament in most American Bible-believing churches. We're not even talking about liberalism here. Liberalism isn't Christian. It's all about Bible-believing churches, Bible-professing churches. The altar call is the substitute for God's rituals. Thus, theology is changed to fit the new ritual, and you get altar call theology. You know, theological systems and books written, which are basically kind of designed to protect the altar call methodology. And, of course, the altar call methodology, since it's Pelagian method, gives rise to Pelagian theology. Man saves himself by an act of will, giving himself to Jesus. And, of course, Jesus is obliged to take this corrupt, filthy sinner. because he wants to give it to him. I tell you, if you handed me a piece of cow manure, I'm not sure I'd want to take it. People seem to think that if they give themselves to God, God has to take them. That's not salvation, see. God takes us. Now we give ourselves to him. There's nothing in us that he wants when we're sinners. So the altar call theology, you see, is pretty corrupt and it begins to corrupt. The altar call ritual is corrupt and it corrupts the theology. More common historically, I say too, what replaces God's rituals, which are done every four months, or once a year, or once every ten years? God's rituals are replaced by anti-rituals, or an anti-ritual attitude, which becomes a whole theology of negation. You don't do this, and you don't do that. As far as the Sabbath is concerned, the Sabbath is not a day to present man's works before God. It's a day to ignore them. We don't do them, we just don't do anything. Negative Sabbatarianism, strong in our tradition, not real strong in this church I'm glad, but strong in our tradition. Negative attitudes toward worship. You can't do this and you can't do that. And then that spills over into negative attitudes on all kinds of things. You can't play with cards. You can't go to the movies. You can't at all. You can't drink. You can't smoke. You can't let your hair down if you're a woman. Or you can't cut it if you're a woman. Or if you're a man, you have to have a beard or something like that. All kinds of things. You can't go swimming. Swimming is sinful and uh, so forth. All these don't do these things really characterizes Protestantism and it grows out of a mentality about worship that says don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that. The regulative principle of worship which should read, do what God says, is made to read, you may never do anything except what God explicitly commands in the Pauline epistles. That type of restrictive negativism flows out into all of life. So God's rituals are replaced by an anti-ritual attitude, and this also has a feedback in that teaching comes to be restricted to only a few confessional points, and the ritual context for teaching is lost, and so the power of preaching is lost. power of preaching is greatly diminished when that's all that's there, because the context for preaching is God's rituals. And then we may expand it out further and say that good works in Protestantism tend to be seen as emotionalism, tears of repentance and not as obedience. This feeds back into preaching, and preaching is designed to arouse feelings rather than bring about commitment and obedience. And I'm not against feelings, but there is a certain priority to commitment and obedience over feelings. After all, tears are only a sign of distress, and distress can be caused by many different things. It's interesting to look in the Bible at the various things that cause people to cry. Some are good and some are bad. Tears are basically a sign of distress. People should be distressed over sin, there's nothing wrong with tears of repentance. But when a man cries, it might be repentance, it might be remorse and regret, which is non-saving. I'm sure Judas cried as he hanged himself. He felt real bad. Then saving. It wasn't repentance, it was remorse, regret. So, but in Protestantism, the good works have come to be seen as internal states of feeling rather than acts of obedience. And that puts the cart before the horse, and it also, uh, reflects this problem. And so we say that basically Protestantism is right and Roman Catholicism is wrong, but basically we need both of these aspects because they're kingly. God calls us to be justified by faith and he puts us in and he gives us the priestly aspect free of charge. We don't earn our way back into the garden. We guard the garden. God puts us back in through his prophetic word, which has a certain primacy when it's given out as prophecy. And then on the basis of that, we grow in both respects, both knowing and doing, in the church and in the world. Now, if that is a little bit different for you, that's why I type this up. And you can sit down and read this 50 or 100 times and uh, meditate on it. And I'm sure you'll see that it's true. Now, next week, we're going to set aside what we've done up to this point and begin a consideration of certain basic principles for understanding culture and how they're worked out in the Bible, and we'll begin to move in much more broadly cultural areas.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.